Hey, thanks for joining us at Connection Point Church. You know, we would love for you to stay connected and a simple way for you to do that is to subscribe so that each week you can get notified when new content goes live. We'd also love to keep in touch with you throughout the week and the best way to do this is through our Connection Point Facebook page. Now with all that being said, let's go to this week's message with our lead pastor, Zach Maddox. Some uh, years ago, I was uh, visiting with a pastor in another state and uh, he had shared with me you know, he was kind of just working through, you know, different things in theology as he was trying to grow as a pastor. And, and so he had asked some of the church leaders in his state kind of about women in ministry, in particular women in church leadership. And, and when he brought it up, basically said the answer he got was, well, we don't really talk a lot about that. Okay, well, that's not a great answer, right? I think all things are worth talking about. And, but, but here's why I think that is. I think because we've not had a whole lot of teaching on it, then we're not real sure what to think sometimes about it. And because there are denominations like ours that ordain women for ministry, we've always done that, early 1900s, but there are also others that do not. And, and so what I kind of want to do today is, is just unpack some of what we find in Scripture to help us all have a better understanding of who we are in the kingdom of God. And, and really that relates to all of us. We all have a place in God's kingdom. And, and so I feel like it'd be worthwhile today as we, we looked at Mother's Day is just look at women in church leadership in general. You know, why is it that, that some denominations will ordain and, and others do not? How is it that we have women who serve as leaders in some portions of the Bible, but then we also see in others that they're maybe told to be quiet? So this is going to be a fun Mother's Day message, right? <laughs> no, it really will be, though. What, what I want to do today as we continue our Better Together series is let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what we find in Scripture and really land on. Why? Because God's Word is our guide. We don't need human opinion. We need God's opinion. And if we apply these principles, then we know that we're going to be headed in the right direction. And so that's all we want to do today. Um, so if you have your Bibles, hey, I hope you do. I really hope you do. We want to be in God's Word today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're in Luke chapter 10 today. And starting in verse 38, uh, maybe a familiar passage for, for some of you. And Jesus is, is interacting here. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. And here's what Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. These are the very words of God. You may be seated this morning. So we, we left off in our series, our Better Together series, with a message on Jesus and power. And in that message, we learned that Jesus uses power to restore people. He uses power in appropriate ways. Jesus uses power to restore people physically, socially, emotionally, and spiritually. I think that's actually a pretty good definition of what shalom means. Shalom is it's wholeness. And Jesus, is, he does wholeness work. That's what he's going after. And, and we see that in the passage that we were in where this woman who touches the fringe of, of Jesus' garment, his prayer shawl is what he's touch, she's touching, and, and, and power goes out from him and she's restored. But not just physically, but Jesus makes a way in that setting to restore her in every way. That's what Jesus does. And, 
And Jesus, what we find here, he doesn't ignore his social power, but he uses it for the sake of others. So power, it's neither positive or negative, it's how we use it determines its qualities. And so we should do that too, that, that if we are in situations where we have greater social power than someone else, what we should do in that case is recognize it and do what we can to elevate them too. That's how Jesus expects us to use power. And then Jesus also gives us power to share good news and set people free. That's what he does for the disciples. I love that passage that when you look at Jesus models the use of power, then he gives it to the disciples and basically says, now go and do likewise. I've shown you how to do it, now you do it. He did it for the woman with the issue of blood. He did it for Jairus. And then he commands the disciples to do the same thing. And now today we find Jesus teaching people in the house of Mary and Martha. And what we find from that passage is, is Jesus wants women to be disciples. Jesus wants women to be disciples. In Scripture, in the Bible, we have Old and New Testaments. That the Old came before Jesus and the New came after and in the Old Testament, we find several high points regarding the place of women. The books of Ruth and Esther, along with the story of Deborah, the prophetess, and, and Jael. These are all prime examples. But in the span of 400 years between the Old and the New Testaments, there seems to be a breakdown in regard to the equality of men and women in Jewish culture. Uh, this breakdown can be found in the writings of Ben Sirach, is his name. You can look this stuff up. He lived in the time between the Testaments, and he writes. And here's what he writes about women. He said that women could be good wives and mothers, that they're to be respected. And that's a good thing. But he also then says, if you don't like your wife, don't trust her. It's interesting marriage advice, right? He says, be careful to keep records of the supplies you issue to her. Woo, here we go says, deed no property to her during your lifetime and don't let her support you. Sirach claims, here's, here's an interesting one. He says, daughters are a disaster. Okay, so the women in the room are ready to like burn Ben Sirach, right? <laughs> so here's the question. Why do I bring this up? I bring this up because it's important for us to understand the environment Jesus was coming into when he arrived on the scene 2,000 years ago. It's always important for us to understand the settings as we consider Scripture. And what we know from history is although we have wonderful examples of women in the Old Testament, the position of women by New Testament times was on all levels inferior to men. We know this. And so then the question is, did Jesus reinforce these attitudes toward women that were widespread in his time, or did he seek to reform them? That's what we want to look at. So let's start by looking at the passage we're in today. In our passage this morning, it says, And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. In the New Testament book of Acts, Paul, a follower of Jesus, he describes himself as having been brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. To sit at the feet of a rabbi meant that person was a disciple of that rabbi. So Mary has positioned herself as a disciple of Rabbi Jesus. And Martha, we're told, she's distracted, not burdened with serving. So she's distracted. She's not burdened, which, which kind of there's a difference then as we look at this. Distracted means Martha is distracted by something for something. So she's being distracted in, in that. So from our passage, it's clear, Martha is distracted from the teachings of Jesus by her cooking. So she's distracted. Martha then asks or asks Jesus to send Mary to the kitchen to help her 
But the point is not Martha's need for someone to peel the potatoes. That's really not what she's after. In this cultural context, Martha is more naturally understood to be upset over the fact that her little sister is seated with the men and has become a disciple of Rabbi Jesus. Martha's thinking, this is disgraceful. What will happen to us? My sister has joined this band of men. What will the neighbors say? What will the family think? After this, who will marry her? This is too much. But how does Jesus reply? Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. I understand the entire list. Jesus knows what Martha's wrestling with. But he says one thing is needed. What is missing is not one more plate of food, but rather for you to understand I'm providing the meal and that your sister has already chosen a good portion. I will not allow you to take it from her. A good student is more important to me than a good meal. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is defending Mary's right to become a disciple and continue her theological studies. Jesus was continually removing the traditional cultural separation between men and women in his time. Jesus wants women to be disciples. He does. Because we don't just find that in this passage, but in many, many others as well. Let's look at Luke chapter 8. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, so they don't even list them all, who provided for them out of their means. Jesus is traveling through cities and villages with a band of men and women who are naturally to become his disciples. Although Ben Sirach instructed men not to allow women to support them, In these verses, we find women are supporting the kingdom of God movement out of their own resources. Luke, who's a man, and writing this, he thinks this is really important to contain within this, as inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's saying, Luke, include this kind of information. He wants his readers to know who paid for the Jesus movement when it was small and vulnerable. Women did. Something else that's interesting in regards to Jesus and women is how he teaches, based on the fact that men and women were among those who were traveling with him. So I just want to kind of run through some scriptures to point this out to you. In his first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth, this is in Luke chapter 4, Jesus tells two stories that are out of Jewish tradition. The first is the account of a woman of Zarephath, and the other, the story of a man, Naaman the Syrian. Later, Jesus presents the twin parables of the mending of a garment, which is a task of women, and the making of wine, which is the work of men. Jesus showed concern for a rejected woman in the house of Simon, and he later expresses concern for a tax collector, a man. Jesus shares a couple of parables on prayer, one highlighting a man and then another, a woman. The parable of the mustard seed, men do farming, is linked to the story of women kneading leaven into bread. The parables of the lost sheep and the lost coiner are taught together. Men herd sheep while women's lives were centered in the house. This is just a handful of many examples, if you look through Scripture, where you can find Jesus interacting with and teaching with both men and women in mind. It's just what Jesus did. Over and over, in practice and in teaching, Jesus desired that both men and women be his disciples. He wants us all to be his disciples, every one of us. 
Jesus elevated the position of women in his time. Why? Because both men and women are made in the image of God. We find in Scripture that we are a kingdom of priests. It doesn't say priests and priestesses. (laughs) It's just we are a kingdom of priests. That's it. So the question is, maybe for us in terms of application, what are we doing to maybe correct some of the societal challenges that we have in our day? Whether you're a man or a woman, do you show preferential treatment to one gender or another in different situations? Or do you make sure to include all people, no matter what? Jesus wants women to be disciples, but really this is just the continuation of Scripture because we see that God uses women throughout the Bible story. God uses women throughout the Bible story. We have books like Ruth and Esther, but more than that, we have women who served as leaders throughout Israel's history. Miriam was part of the leadership team with Moses and Aaron. Moses was a lawgiver, Aaron was a priest, and Miriam was a prophet. When the children of Israel escaped the clutches of Pharaoh, it was Miriam who led the Israelites into worship with these inspired words. Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he's hurled into the sea. Those are Miriam's words. When a later prophet Micah, he spoke of Israel's deliverance, he quoted the Lord as saying, I brought you up out of Egypt. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. The Lord lists them all. Deborah, she's another important leader. She's the equivalent, hear this, of president, pope, and Rambo, all wrapped up in one woman's body. That's an interesting mix, right? So like Miriam, Deborah's a prophet. Reading from Judges chapter four. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She was to her generation what Moses was to his. The word translated judged, it combines the ideas of national leadership, judicial decisions, and political military savior. That's who Deborah was. From Deborah, we learn that women could speak for God as a prophet. They could render decisions in a law court as a judge, exercise leadership over the entire spiritual social Israel, and be a military commander who brought Israel to victory. All of these things. To use other terms, she led the nation spiritually, Musically, legally, politically, and militarily. In so many ways. Deborah was a leader of the entire people of God. Huldah, another important female figure we find in the Old Testament. And what's interesting is, as I mention these names, you might be completely unfamiliar with them. Why? Because we don't talk about them for some reason. So we're going to talk about them today. Huldah, she was a prophet above the prophets. When King Josiah discovers the long-lost Torah in the temple, the king knows he needs to consult a prophet to discern what to do. We, he could have chosen in his time, think about this, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, or Huldah. So it's very interesting. The first four I mentioned have books in the Old Testament, but Josiah chooses Huldah above the rest. Chooses her. And Huldah's not chosen because no men were available. She's chosen because she's exceptional among the prophets. She confirms for Josiah that the scroll he found is indeed God's Torah, the Holy Scriptures, and Huldah, unafraid to tell the truth, tells Josiah that a disobedient Israel will face God's judgment. But because the king has humbled himself before God, he will be gathered to his ancestors in peace. Huldah was a prophet of prophets. So when we look at the Old Testament, we find that women, they spoke for God, they led the nation in every department, they confirmed Scripture, and they guided the nation back to the path of righteousness. But now what about the New Testament? 
We've already seen that Jesus wanted women to be disciples, but what other roles do we find them in? Well, we find moms. How about Elizabeth, the mother of John the baptizer, and Mary, the mother of Jesus? Pretty important moms, right? Absolutely. Do we think that they had influence on their son's lives? Absolutely. Mary influenced Jesus the Messiah and her New Testament writing son, James. She also provided information to Luke for the stories that he records in his gospel account. What other roles do we find? We find an outstanding apostle named Junia. Reading from Romans chapter 16, verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who've been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. So Junia is an outstanding apostle who served prison time with Paul. That's pretty cool, right? She's not just an ordinary run-of-the-mill apostle as, there, as though that exists, right? She's an outstanding apostle. I love that that's what Paul writes. She's a leading apostle. Spiritually speaking, you know, apostles, they plant churches, oftentimes in cross-cultural contexts, much like what, what missionaries do today. Uh, most missionaries, they have apostolic giftings. So as an outstanding apostle, Junia would have been involved in things like evangelizing, teaching, preaching, establishing, and leading churches. That's what Junia did. She would have been someone with incredible character, godliness, and love that others could observe and imitate. In the New Testament, we find women as moms and apostles. But what else do we find? We find great teachers, like Priscilla. Priscilla and her husband, Aquila, they were kicked out of Rome when Claudius ordered all Jews to evacuate. They became acquainted with Paul in Corinth, and they began to make tents together. They traveled with Paul to Ephesus, where Priscilla and Aquila explained to Apollos the way of Jesus. Uh, an interesting thing to note when Scripture talks about Priscilla and Aquila is Priscilla's name is usually listed first, designating her as the more prominent one in this amazing ministry team. Priscilla was a theology teacher. And the last one I'll mention this morning is Phoebe. I actually talked about her at length uh, in Mother's Day of 2019. In a message, Life is Messy, you might want to go back and listen to that. Phoebe was a pretty extraordinary person. We, we find in Romans chapter 16, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, so Paul's writing the church in Rome, who is a deacon in the church in Centria. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to many and especially to me. So unlike Priscilla and Junia, who are both married, Phoebe's husband is not mentioned here. She may have been single, maybe a widow, or her husband may have not been a believer. We're not sure, but that really doesn't seem to matter to Paul. What matters is her calling from God and her spiritual giftedness. There's no indication that women could teach and lead only if they were connected to a man who was a leader. We see that Phoebe's a deacon, an important leader in the church who served others. But even more than that, it's understood she was the one who carried the letter she's mentioned in this New Testament book of Romans, so she carried it to Rome to read it aloud and answer questions people had. That's a pretty important responsibility, right? She's the first commentator on the book of Romans. That's pretty significant. So how do we see God using women throughout the Bible story? As prophets, speaking for God. As leaders, leading a nation. As moms, apostles, teachers, deacons, and as commentators of Scripture. Isn't that extraordinary? Ladies and gentlemen, we are a kingdom of priests, men and women. 
And I was, in preparing for this message, I was seeing how this story is carried forward to our day. In our midst at Connection Point Church, we have Junias, Priscilla's, Mary's, and Phoebe's. Do you know that? What I wanted to do today is I felt like it'd be worthwhile for us just to honor them. So I'm going to ask a couple of ladies to come up, and they weren't told, so I'm sure they're going to smack me later, and it's okay. I will receive it in Jesus' name. (laughs) But I'd like to ask Marlene Troyer, Ginger Smith, and Deanne Dalton if they could come. Can we welcome them as they come? Somebody might need to go get Ginger. She might be serving with kids this morning. Could I ask, Shelly, would you mind to maybe go get her? I already heard it. I'm going to get smacked. That's all right. <laughs> Here she comes. That's great. <laughs> I won't repeat that one. I'll get smacked twice. <laughs> Ginger, I'll have you come to the middle, have you guys in the light. If, if you don't know these wonderful ladies, Deanne has served as a deacon at Connection Point Church. We have a Phoebe in our midst. Isn't that awesome? We do. And Ginger not only serves in teaching our kids, but if uh, she's done an amazing job in connect groups, and I will say without connect groups, she's always looking for places to teach. I mean, yeah. she's, she is a Priscilla in our midst. Yeah. Can we thank Ginger? And if you don't know uh, Marlene Troyer, you know, I love, she'll call and, and kind of get opinions on what about this in reaching our neighbors. Like she took the Case for Christ books for Christmas, so Case for, for Christmas books, put those in, in Christmas goodie dishes to give out to neighbors. She's always looking for how can I reach someone else? That's apostolic work. Yeah. I mean, this is a junior in our midst. So can we just applaud these ladies? And we know that these aren't the only ones we have. It's just, these are the ones that the Lord dropped in my heart as I was doing message preparation in this week. And, and so we really just want to celebrate all the women of Connection Point Church who are moms like Mary and Elizabeth raising godly kids. You know what? That's a calling from the Lord. Amen. It's huge. Amen. And so you have a place in God's kingdom. You are, so, you are vital in the kingdom of God. And, and so we've got gifts for you on Main Street as you depart today, ladies. We just want to say thanks for being with us and being our co-laborers in Christ. So ladies, I'll let you be seated. Can we just thank them for coming this morning? So we see that God uses women throughout the Bible story. But what about those passages of Scripture that talk about not allowing women to teach men? Because we have a couple of those as well. And, and as we look at those passages, here's what we're going to find. I'll, I'll go ahead and give you the punchline. Jesus expects people to be learners before teachers. Paul expects people, that's what he's writing about. Paul expects people to be learners before teachers. So the, the passages that come into question, I want to read those. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and then 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So reading from 1 Timothy chapter 2. I desire that in every place the men should pray. So Paul is writing his mentee, Timothy. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. You will see, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, so that's 1 Timothy. Then we've got 1 Corinthians chapter 14. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So in all of these, we've got to understand the context. So Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is talking about order that, uh, in terms of order of service, it's meant to be decently and in order. So that's the context here. So for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they're not permitted to speak, but should be submissive, as the law also says. For there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So what's interesting is we look at these verses and passages, and this is why I want to talk about this, because I don't feel like we've got clear understanding on how this all works together. On the one hand, we see Paul talking about an outstanding apostle named Junia, an incredible teacher named Priscilla, and an amazing deacon named Phoebe. Paul writes about all these women. Paul mentions all three of these leading ladies in his letter to the Roman church. And on the other hand, we see him instructing the church in Corinth and Timothy, who's leading the church in Ephesus, for women to be silent. So what's going on here? Either Paul is contradicting the way we see God use women throughout the story of the Bible, or this keep quiet admonition, there's something else going on there. So when it comes to interpreting scripture, I want you to understand that process. This is so important for, I believe, every believer to understand. How do we rightly interpret scripture? Here's a great illustration. So there's a book that you can look at, Grasping God's Word. It's kind of more of a master's level biblical interpretation class. There's, there's another one that you could read that we've actually done as a connect group. But you have to, when you interpret scripture, number one, understand what did this passage mean to the people of whom it was written to? If we're gonna apply things right, we can't change the application of scripture from what it meant to that first group to then what it means to us. This is so important. Even in literature, we have uh, something we call authorial intent. What did the author mean? I can't make a book, and let's say especially the Bible, mean something the author didn't mean. And who's the author of this text? God is. So we can't change his interpretation based on just our own human application. So we first have to understand what did it mean to the people of whom it was written to? And then what we pull out of that are theological principles that we say these are universally true. And part of that process is looking, okay, so these are the theological principles in this passage, but does that also align with the rest of Scripture? Because you can't just pull it from one passage and say, well, this is what it means if it doesn't make sense in the rest of Scripture. But once you know those principles, you know they're universally true throughout Scripture, then we can apply them to ourselves today. Does that make sense? I want you to understand a little bit of that process. That's the process I work through with every message that we share on a Sunday. So this is that illustration. So if we want to understand these passages of Scripture in their original context, we need to understand what's happening at the time of their writing. So research is involved. So Paul is writing Timothy, who's ministering in Ephesus, a prominent Roman city, where the worship of the fertility goddess of Artemis is prominent. That's who he's writing. That's what's happening in Ephesus. And then Paul is writing believers in Corinth, which is another prominent Roman city. It's important for us to know that when Paul wrote these letters, there was this gender and sexual revolution that was underway in lots of the major cities in the Roman Empire. So things were happening culturally. There was something called the New Roman Woman that was emerging. You can find primary source documents that talk about this. 
And so what she was expressing, this new Roman woman, uh, this new Roman woman was newfound freedoms in immodest, sexually provocative terms and provocative dress. So that's what was happening. There's actually a first century novel. You can look this up. I know that I'm in an educated audience. We're in a university town. Primary source documents matter, right? So go look it up. There's one called Anthea and Habricombs. This is a first century novel. It talks about this new Roman woman. It describes a couple of social elites. They're actually from Ephesus. Paul, who's writing Timothy, same town. And they're engaged in a love affair. And in one part of the story, there's a procession through Ephesus down to the temple of Artemis. And this is what it says about Anthenia's appearance. Her hair was golden, a little bit of it plaited. This is part of the writing of that novel. And this is very close to what Paul writes Timothy. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided or elaborate hair and gold. Isn't that interesting? Paul's writing about certain things here. The first century novel I mentioned, it goes on to describe seduction in the middle of the worship service at the temple of Artemis and how the new Roman woman almost snatches the podium for public addresses and teaching. So with this novel in circulation, Paul has deep concerns about the influence of certain Roman women and their behavior in the early church. They were beginning to jeopardize the holiness of the Christian church. Some critics of the church were suggesting the emerging Christian faith was little more than a fertility cult. And this is the context for Paul's statements in Timothy and for the believers in Corinth. We see the context for Paul's letter to Corinth as decent and orderly worship. Specifically, Paul says, if there's anything they desire to learn, talking about women, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. So instead of following the example of the new Roman women who would snatch the podium, what Paul is saying, allow the teacher to teach. Don't take it for yourself. But here's the big point that Paul is making. The big point is not keep the women silent, but teach the women. That's the principle. That's the principle at play here. The principle is learn before teaching. That's how we apply it. That's what he was saying to the original audience. That's the principle we can pull out and apply it to ourselves today. So, because what I don't want you to look at is, well, as Paul's writing specifically to that audience, it doesn't apply to us today. Oh, no, it very much applies to us today. All of us should learn before teaching. All of us. And I would say this, if, if this is kind of new information for you, depending on your, your theological background, look, I, <laughs> I always have good book recommendations. No, but all, in all seriousness, if you'd like to be a learner, even in this field, just let me know, and I'll shoot you an email with a couple of honestly easy-read commentaries that help to explain this in greater depth than what I can go into today. Paul didn't address the men in this way. Consider this. Because in that day, men were more privileged in education than women. So that's why he doesn't go there. It's really that simple. But even so, I want to say this principle is played out even with a man named Apollos. Let's go to, to Acts chapter 18. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. So look at He's already a learner. And so then he starts teaching, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he knew a lot, but he didn't know it all. So what happens? He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, this great ministry couple, Priscilla, the teacher of theology, when they heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So even for Apollos, a man, 
being instructed by a woman. I, I, I love this example. He wants all of us to be learners before teachers. Does that make sense this morning? That's it. Why? Because all people, all people, we should all learn before we teach. So in short, women in the Roman Empire, and in particular Ephesus, they were advancing counter-Christian ideas and practices. So Paul is concerned about the reputation of the gospel and the respectability of Christian women for fear they might be associated with the offensive side of other behaviors. So if you continue reading 1 Timothy, so keep reading all the way to chapter 5, you'll see that Paul seemed particularly concerned with some young widows. So there's actually a direct application when Paul's writing Timothy, he says in particular in chapter 5, these young widows, he urges them to live a life of holiness and to learn before they start teaching. When Paul asks women to be silent in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he's not talking about ordinary Christian women. His concern is with some untrained, morally loose, young widows who, because they are theologically uninformed, they're teaching unorthodox ideas. So to be clear, Paul's not advocating women should not teach, but that they should learn sound theology before they teach. They should sit at the feet of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Until these women are informed, until they're formed in character, they should be learners, which makes Paul's two comments about women being silent consistent with the rest of Scripture. Women who have always been gifted by God to speak, for God and to lead God's people. They were doing that in Paul's churches. They had oversight for them, Junia, Priscilla, and Phoebe. But women who have not yet learned scripture and theology, who had not yet learned how to live a Christian life, they're not to become teachers until they're first learners. Learning precedes teaching. It's really that simple. So then I would ask all of us, how are we doing as learners of the gospel? Jesus wants all of us to be learners. And part of learning, let me say, is not just mental assent, but actually doing. You haven't learned something unless you're doing it. So how are we doing as learners of the gospel? Are you spending time daily in God's word? Are you coming on a Sunday and not just listening to message, but then begin applying it to your life? What's your I will statement? Are you involved in a life group? It's important that we grow together with others who can hold us accountable to that kind of life. It's important we become learners before teachers. And as we consider God's original design for us, we find we have the opportunity for mutuality because God's original design is oneness, not otherness. It really is. Right away in Genesis, we find that God created male and female as mutuals, made for each other. They were at one with one another. I would actually encourage you, go back to read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and you'll see that this is true. So often we get off in our thinking because we're thinking about Genesis chapter 3. But that's not how things started. There started men and women made for each other. But then the fall recorded in Genesis chapter 3, it distorts God's original design, and oneness becomes otherness and rivalry for power. Here's what we find, the tragic words in Genesis chapter 3. You will desire to control your husband, God speaking to Eve, but he will rule over you. That's a result of the fall. Evil caused the woman to seek dominance over the man, and And the man's evil heart caused the man to seek dominance over the woman. This war of wills is not God's original design. It's really not. But God granted us freedom to exercise our wills, and the Bible's prediction is that men and women will not always get along. So that's the Bible's prediction. Genesis chapter 3, men and women won't always get along. We've never found that to be true, right? I'm not going to mention names. (laughs) But this war of wills, it's, it's not God's design. And the good news story of the Bible is that broken creation eventually gives way to a new creation 
where instead of a war of wills, there can be a unity of wills. So that's the really good news this morning. And this is exactly what Jesus is going after in practice and in teaching. In Matthew chapter 19, we find Jesus teaching that although Moses permitted divorce, this is not God's original intention. Permanence, love, oneness, mutuality, this is God's original design. Jesus didn't want people living marred by the fall, at odds with one another, but instead living as new creation in oneness. A Jesus community, the church, it undoes the distortions of the fall because Jesus leads us toward a fully alive life, one that's not marred by the fall. Paul reinforces this in, in places like 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Genesis chapter 3, what are the implications? Those things which uh, happen in Genesis chapter 3, they're being undone. Paul reinforces this in, in Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The words Paul that uses for male and female, he's quoting from Genesis chapter 1, the creation story. Paul is saying Jesus ushers in a kingdom people who are being brought back to God's original design of oneness instead of otherness. Life in Jesus creates unity, equality, and oneness. Now, can I say, aren't there a lot more implications for this than just between male and female? Absolutely. What we learn from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is that God originally made Adam and Eve as mutuals. Evil distorted that relationship, but that Jesus came to usher in a kingdom that's new creation. And so the question we've got to ask ourselves in the church is, will we leave up, live up to our new creation potential, or will we default to our fallen state? We could ask ourselves that every day. Will we desire to control our spouse, or will we desire the oneness that God intends? Will we receive instruction from gifted apostles, teachers, and deacons who are women? Or will we deny their opportunity to be full-fledged disciples of Jesus, outstanding members of this congregation? Those are the questions we should ask ourselves. The choice is for all of us this morning. Which will you choose, oneness or otherness? In God's kingdom, his desire is that we live as one in Christ. And Paul reinforces that. So my encouragement is let's live up to our new creation potentials as disciples of Jesus. That's what we should do all of us. I'm going to invite you to stand as we close in song this morning. And as you're standing, I, I just want to ask and, and give invitation this morning for you to maybe live different than you have up to this point. Have you been living up to your new creation potential? Or maybe you've been defaulting to your fallen state. The good news is, Jesus, upon his ascension, he sends us the Holy Spirit so that we can live as new creation. You can't do it on your own. This isn't self-help, this is Jesus' help. <laughs> and he can provide the help that we need to live up to our God-given potential. And that's my encouragement for all of us this morning. So if you're here today and you'd say, I've not been living up to my new creation potential, but today I'd like to. And I just wanna go ahead and, and confess that before the Lord and I wanna pray with you this morning. So with every head bowed in this room, if you'd like to say, you know what? I've, just, I've missed my potential either because I've never made a decision to follow Jesus. So let me say, you can't meet your new creation potential if you haven't first devoted your life to Jesus. So we've got to start there. So maybe you'd say, that's me. Or maybe you'd say, you know what? I've been following Jesus, but I just haven't been meeting my potential in new creation. Wherever you find yourself this morning, if you just want to raise your hand, I want to pray with you before we leave today. Just as you make a commitment to live in that new creation potential that God has for you. Who here today would say, that's me? 
Pray with me this morning. God, we just thank you that you give us this invitation, this opportunity to live up to our new creation potential in the kingdom of God. Men and women, people of all races, all nations, all professional backgrounds, all socioeconomic classes, Lord, we are a kingdom of priests and we truly are better together. And so God, I just thank you today. Today we, we celebrate in particular the women in our midst that carry that story forward of, of Junias and Priscilla's and Phoebe's and Mary's. Jesus, we just celebrate them today and their contribution to the kingdom of God. Lord, we can't do it without each other. We can't do it alone. And so, Lord, we just celebrate the women in our room in this congregation who are tuning in online. Lord, we just thank you for the women of Connection Point Church. What a blessing they are to this body, to this greater Lafayette area, and even to the world as we pray for the nations and invest in the nations. God, I just thank you that the examples you give us in Scripture to help us find clarity in the way that we move forward as, as a kingdom of priests. So God, I just pray that we all would commit together to live up to our new creation potential, remove prejudice and bias, maybe even teachings that we've heard that, that really haven't been aligned with scripture. I pray, Jesus, that we would test you and your word. Lord, may people even test the words that I shared today. Lord, may they dive in on their own and test your word and find it to be true. And Lord, we just commit this day to you. And we believe you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.